This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. I can begin by, uh, I guess, letting you know who I am. Uh, my name is Catherine Stoner Weiss. I'm the Associate Director for the Center on Democracy, De- Development, and the Rule of Law at the Stanford Institute for International Studies. Um, The title of our panel this morning is What Next? Governance and Democracy. The title is indicative of one of the most central research and policy tasks of the Center on Democracy, Development, and the Rule of Law, which is the newest of the Stanford Institute for International Studies constituent centers. CDDRL was founded just over two years ago through a generous grant by the Bill and Flora Hewlett Foundation and is comprised of some of Stanford's top economists, sociologists, lawyers, and political scientists working together on common research themes from very different but complementary academic disciplinary perspectives. Our center, CDDRL, is truly interdisciplinary, and the issues that we pursue, the establishment of democracy, the promotion of economic development, and the rule of law in places where these public goods are sorely lacking, could not be more timely nor more important, especially in the wake of September 11th, 2001. There are a few better places in the world, if any, than Stanford to pursue these subjects, and it's an honor uh, to be able to work with the collection of scholars uh, and policymakers that we have assembled at the center. And now to the subject of our panel this morning. Most of you will know that United States foreign policy over the last 10 or so years has been driven by the somewhat suspect idea that democracies don't fight one another, and thus spreading democracy is good for peace. Democracy also provides a variety of other public goods beyond potential international peace, including respect for human rights, personal and economic security, and perhaps, although this is less certain, economic growth. But all of these promises of democracy are dependent on the second aspect of our panel this morning, and that is the ability that newly democratized or democratizing states have to actually govern over their territories. That is, the ability to come through on the promises fledgling democratic states make to their often beleaguered citizenry. These promises might include economic growth, civil liberties, clean water, rule of law, rather than arbitrary dictatorial rule by law, protection of private property and contracts, But coming through on these sorts of promises depends on the machinery of the state actually having administrative capacity and authority. If newly democratizing states do not, then a legitimacy crisis can ensue and a backslide from democracy can be the ultimate result. So our panel will explore this theme, regime type and governing capabilities uh, in the developing world. Beyond introducing Uh, The theme of the panel, I have the honor of also introducing our panelists this morning. I'll begin with my two Stanford friends and colleagues, Larry Diamond and John McMillan, before introducing our esteemed British visitor, Professor Paul Collier of Oxford University. All three of our panelists are extraordinary examples, I think, of how policy and academic research can be productively combined. John McMillan is the Jonathan B. Lovelace Professor of Economics here at Stanford University. He is perhaps most importantly to me, the coordinator of the program on economic performance at the Center on Democracy, Development, and the Rule of Law. John came to Stanford in 1999 from UC San Diego and before that from the University of Western Ontario in Canada, 
A New Zealander, John received a BSc and MCOM from the University of Canterbury and his PhD from the University of New South Wales in Australia. His research includes the natural history of markets, institutional design in new markets, and most recently, corruption in developing countries. He is the author of the 2002 book, Reinventing the Bazaar, A Natural History of Markets. His most recent papers have looked at the interplay between democracy and corruption in Peru and Angola in particular. Larry Diamond, like John McMillan, is another excellent example at Stanford of the bonding of outstanding academic and policy work. Larry is a true product of Stanford, having received his BA, MA, and PhD from Stanford in sociology, and he has served and is currently a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution, and on loan to us today, I guess, from the Hoover Institution. He is also a professor of political science and sociology by courtesy, and like John, one of the original founders of the Center on Democracy, Development, and the Rule of Law. He serves as the coordinator of the democracy program at CDDRL. Larry is one of this country's most well-known students of democracy and democratic theory in the developing world. He has edited, co-edited, or written more than 20 books on democracy. Beyond this, though, as I mentioned, Larry has pursued a double life in the policy world, including as a consultant to the United States Agency on International Development, working on the report Foreign Aid in the National Interest, and even more recently during the first three months of 2004 when he served as a senior advisor on governance to the Coalitional Provisional Authority in Iraq. He has recently completed a book due out shortly based on his experiences in Iraq called Squandered Victory, the American Occupation and the Bungled Effort to Bring Democracy to Iraq. Finally, let me introduce our lead speaker this morning, Professor Paul Collier of Oxford University. Paul will be known to many of you already um, he is Professor of Economics and the Director of the Center for the Study of African Economies at Oxford. He is also a Professorial Fellow at St. Anthony's College at Oxford. Paul is a leading world expert on the micro and macro economics of the developing world. He has written three books on labor and financial markets and on rural development. His recent work has also included, cross, um, included cutting edge research into the challenges of economic transition, from civil war in developing countries, particularly in Africa. At CDDRL, we hope Paul will become even more renowned for the work he has done with us on failed and failing states in the developing world with um, the former director of the Center on Democracy, Development, and the Rule of Law, Professor Stephen Krasner, who now serves as the current director of policy planning in the United States Department of State. Paul, like Larry and John, has a long history of doing high-quality research into the politics and economics of the developing world and also applying these ideas in the policy world. From 1998 to 2003, for example, he worked as the director of the development research group at the World Bank. He has just completed the first-ever external review of the International Monetary Fund operations for the IMF board. The wide view that his academic and policy work uh, into the political economy of development make Paul an excellent choice to lead off our panel this morning. And so with that, I want to hand over to Paul Collier. Well, thank you very much for uh, inviting me. It's both uh, an honor and a pleasure to uh, speak uh, to such a distinguished audience. Um, 
what I'm going to talk about is the, the role of democracy in two difficult transformations, transformations of governance. One is the Middle East, uh, and the other is failing states. Uh, in some ex important circumstances, which I'm going to spell out, democracy does substantially improve governance. It's the solution to the problem. But what I'm going to argue is that, unfortunately, neither in the Middle East nor in failing states uh, do we have these conditions. Um, as a result, democracy will, will not improve governance, at least economic governance, and it may even worsen it. In these situations, domestic democratic processes need to be reinforced by external actors. As external actors, we've got four instruments. The power of our media, our companies, that is our business community, our public money for aid, and our military. And my argument is going to be, we're going to have to learn how to use these four instruments much more effectively in the future than we've used them in the past. I should just say as an aside that this whole talk arose from a, a meeting I, I, I had uh, with Condoleezza Rice when she came to, to Britain recently. I was fortunate to be invited to the US Embassy and uh, one of the things she, she said was that um, our role is to, is to pump prime democracy and that once we pump primed it, we can then let countries get on with it. And I, I challenged her on that. I said, I really don't think that's right in a lot of circumstances. Um, I explained and she listened and you know what, politicians are around the world, they've learned techniques for fobbing off awkward questions like that. What, what Condoleezza Rice said, she, she thought, she stopped, she thought, and she said, you're obviously right, what I said was wrong. I was enormously impressed by that because it, it struck me, I'm talking, to a, I'm talking to an academic who happens to be one of the world's top policy makers, I'm not listening to the usual policy bullshit, right? So um, that's an aside, but all this talk is, as it were, an elaboration of that conversation. So let me start by talking about transformation in the Middle East. The defining feature of the Middle East is oil. And resource rents globally have been bad news. Right? I don't need to elaborate on that. Economists got into the act of explaining why they were bad news 30 years ago, and they came up with this idea of Dutch disease. It wasn't a very convincing explanation. And what's happened is that more recently, explanation has shifted to political scientists who've come up with a more plausible explanation in terms of resource rents undermine governance in some way. And I think that's right. Now, the current strategy in the Middle East is clearly that democratization is going to be the instrument of transformation of governance. Most of the debate is about will that happen? Will democracy happen in the Middle East? Yes, I hope so. And I'm going to assume that it will. Right? I'm not going to discuss that. It's beyond my area of competence. 
I'm going to talk about a different question, which is, supposing it happens, will it work? Will it transform governance? Because I'm an economist, I'm not licensed to speak on matters other than economic governance, so that's what I'm going to focus on. Will it transform economic governance? I'm going to argue that in the Middle East, democracy is actually likely to worsen economic governance unless democracy takes a very distinctive form and that it's not going to take that form unless we in the West change our behavior. So that's the agenda. My evidence uh, is drawn from, from two different sources. Uh, one is, those who know anything about me will be amazed that I'm speaking about the Middle East, a region about which I palpably know nothing. Um, my, uh, my, my evidence, I, I'm an Africanist. Africa happens to be the other resource-rich region in the world, and it also has one advantage over the Middle East, if you're thinking about what effects democracy has, because it democratized about a decade ago. The last big wave of democratization rolled across Africa as well as Eastern Europe. So there's a lot of resource-rich democracies in Africa. The second uh, source of evidence, and the one I mainly want to rely on, is, is global statistical research that I've done recently. Um, looking at 1970 to the present, we've built uh, estimates of resource rents, country by country, year by year, globally, and we're going to look at what those resource rents do and how they interplay with, uh, with democracy. When I say we, it's not royal. It's that uh, my, my young research colleague, Anke Huffler, uh, is, is, is my colleague and collaborator in all this. Uh, indeed, you will find our papers on her website, not mine. Um, in, in her website, there's two things going on. One is all this regression analysis. And the other is a lot of horses, because she happens to be the British uh, horse jumping champion. Um, uh, what do we find? Uh, we find two circumstances where democracy is the solution to economic governance. And let me get that on record before I say what's wrong with democracy. One set of circumstances is where there aren't any natural resource rents. Democracy, once you take out resource rents, democracy significantly raises growth compared with dictatorship and autocracy. The other circumstance where it's even better is if you add to an absence of resource rents a lot of ethnic diversity. In ethnically diverse societies, of which Africa has an awful lot, but so do some other regions, uh, Democracy is really good. It really raises growth. Why, why is it that ethnic diversity is particularly suited to democracy? Sometimes we hear exactly the opposite, don't we? The reason why ethnic diversity is particularly suited to democracy is that it's particularly ill-suited to dictatorship. If you have a dictatorship in an ethnically diverse society, it invariably rests on one ethnic group. So the more diverse the society, the narrower the little ethnic group that the dictatorship is resting on. And then the bigger the incentive to go for redistribution over growth. And so these ethnic dictatorships are pretty well always a disaster. Democracy solves that problem. 
I'll give you an example of a, an ethnically diverse democracy without many resource rents, which is doing just fine. Ghana, just had an election very recently. Fine, democracy is good for Ghana. But we're not talking about Ghana, we're going to talk about the Middle East. And if you take these two characteristics, no resource rents and a lot of ethnic diversity, somehow, I mean, I'm not a Middle East specialist, but it doesn't sound like the Middle East, does it? Right? In fact, the Middle East got exactly the characteristics which uh, we're going to find uh, are most lethal for democracy. What does democracy do in the presence of large natural resource rents? Well, it significantly reduces growth. Without natural resource rents, democracies outperform autocracies. With natural resource rents, autocracies outperform democracies. And you'll have worked out there must be some critical level of natural resource rents where they break even, and it's about 8% of GDP. It's time for the cavalry. Uh, in Britain, you can get away with a depressing lecture, but not in America. So here comes the cavalry. Um, we now introduce uh, checks and balances. Uh, I'm using a measure built by uh, a couple of people in the research department I used to direct in, uh, in the World Bank, uh, Phil Kiefer and Steve Knack. They built a a, uh, quite a rigorous measure of, of checks and balances in, the, in a society. Just as democracy has distinctive and significant adverse effects in the presence of resource rents, so checks and balances have significant and distinctive favorable effects in the presence of natural resource rents. If you've got enough checks and balances in a democracy, resource rents work for good rather than for bad. Since autocracies are not terribly good at checks and balances, that was a joke, uh, a, uh, a democracy with enough checks and balances will outperform an autocracy. Right? Why? What's going on? We're now getting to explanation. What goes wrong with economic governance in these resource-rich democracies? We're going to look at two levels of explanation. First, just the sort of nitty-gritty of the economics of it, what mistakes are made. Turns out that the big mistake is the, is the rate of return on investment goes down. The little mistake is that the society doesn't invest enough. We now know that all democracies tend to have that fault. They invest less. That's more important where there's resource rents because the big story that should be happening with a lot of resource rents is a lot of investment. But the real killer is not the amount of investment, but the rate of return on investment. Democracy lowers the rate of return on investment. What do checks and balances do to put it right? Well, I'm able to nail down, identify one particular check and balance and show that that works. And this is separately, I've used the Hoover Institute's data on press freedom. And uh, I find that press freedom is significantly more beneficial for growth in the presence of natural resource rents. Now let's go to the deeper question of why democracy goes wrong in the presence of big resource rents. And this is, in fact, the crux of what I have to say. 
It's the processes of democracy. The heart of democracy is, of course, electoral competition. And parties are going to do, in electoral competition, what is needed for votes. I'm going to contrast two strategies for winning votes. One is the normal business of democratic politics, which is delivering public goods, spending public money well for the benefit of ordinary people. And the alternative strategy is to divert public money into private patronage and bribe people to vote for you. Now, of course, normally, there's not much contest. The miracle of public goods is what economists call non-rival property, right? You can consume the same public good as you. You don't exhaust it. Uh, And that's not true of private patronage. So normally, uh, delivering public goods well will dominate a strategy of private bribery. That is, if each vote has to be attracted individually. If, however, votes can be, be, as it were, attracted in blocks, in big enough blocks, it becomes viable or even more cost-effective to buy a few people, to buy a few influential people, to buy the opinion leaders. Now, the conditions for getting votes wholesale rather than retail, for getting them in blocks, uh, is uh, basically that voters have to follow opinion leaders rather than judge for themselves. I think two things tend to contribute to that. One is lousy public information, no no free press and so on. And the other is ethnic identities and ethnic loyalties. If private patronage is the cost-effective strategy, then that's what's going to happen. That's what democracy will look like unless unless the political parties can't finance it. That is, unless they can't embezzle the public revenues into private patronage. The one thing that can stop that process of embezzlement is checks and balances. With strong enough checks and balances, even though democratic parties would like to embezzle and buy votes wholesale, they can't embezzle the money, so they haven't got the money to finance the patronage game. Why do rents, resource rents uh, flip the society from the normal form of democratic politics into the game of private patronage? Well, I think the key reason, and one reason is there's just more revenue about, but the key reason is that the resource rents undermine the checks and balances which protect that public revenue from embezzlement. I can show statistically that that process of erosion and checks and balances happens both cross-sectionally and over time as a result of resource rents. The way I think it happens is that if a government's got a lot of resource rents, it doesn't need to tax. If it doesn't need to tax, it doesn't provoke scrutiny. Scrutiny is a public good and we know public goods will normally be radically undersupplied, and what provokes the provision of the public good of scrutiny is the misery of being taxed. Okay? And so typically, 
the resource-rich countries choose to use a lot of the resource revenues to eliminate tax revenues. Sometimes they don't even have higher overall, resource, overall revenues than other countries, than countries without resource revenues, without resource riches. They just have a different structure of revenue. It's the revenue structure of the quiet life. I'm going to term the resource revenues that a government is free to embezzle, I'm going to call them uh, sovereign revenues. Let me give a couple of examples. Uh, Nigeria. Um, This is an example of how checks and balances matter for restraining precisely the embezzlement which lowers the rate of return on investment. A couple of examples. One is the transition from military rule to democracy in 1978. An intense political competition, intense electoral competition, the Shigari regime comes in, very hard-fought contest. The elected politicians are deeply in debt by the time they're elected. There's a big dam, a $120 million dam, which the military has just approved. That investment is pulled back by the civilian regime and reawarded. It's reawarded at a cost of 600 million. So we know that however much padding was in that military contract, uh, the civilian contract contained 480 million dollars more. Just think of the scale of it. 600 million, and we know that 480 million was wasted. That's an example of how the rate of return on investment can go down radically as a result of democratization. Another Nigerian example is in the the latest Nigerian democratic regime between Obasanyo I and Obasanyo II. Obasanyo I, Obasanyo is the president, um, Obasanyo I was a classic Shigari-style very intense electoral competition, no checks and balances. 80% of the senators lost their seats in the, uh, in the, in the uh, second election. But Obasanyo too, to his enormous credit, builds checks and balances. The most elementary check and balance is to introduce competitive tendering for public projects. And so he pulls some projects that have just been awarded and sends them out to competitive tender. The cost goes down 40%. Very elementary check and balance, dramatically raising the return on public investment. Chad would be another example. I've just come from Chad. Uh, I was uh, talking with the president of Chad on Tuesday night, so I've just flown in. Um, Chad had this extremely important system, the, 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 the Chad Cameron pipeline arrangement, Uh, And that arrangement has just been activated. We're four months into the first budget where the government is being restrained in its use of the oil revenues by uh, a legal agreement. And uh, what the president is proposing to do is change the law. Four months is enough of restraint. 
Now, I've spoken about, sort of implicitly, about the Middle East in, in the next decade, but the problem is actually much bigger because oil is coming to the, uh, the democracies as well as democracy coming to the oil economies. Uh, I'll talk about that more this afternoon. Um, I don't think the checks and balances are going to come automatically to these societies. There's really no incentive for domestic political actors to introduce checks and balances. And there's a sort of catch-22 of development, which is that I find that checks and balances are sustained if income is high enough. Right? If you're Norway, yeah, you've got these oil rents, but you've also got high income, and you're safe. Right? So what you need is high income. To get, high in to get to high income, you need growth. But if you've got democracy and natural resource rents, growth is precisely what you don't get. You're stuck in a trap. The patronage politics trap. That situation needs our help. I'm just going to suggest two things that we can do and then move on to failed states. One is our message as a media message needs to move on from elections. Over the last decade, the relentless media message from the West has been elections. Think back to, uh, to Ukraine, for example, recently. A lot of the demonstrators were putting up placards in English. Right? We were the audience for some of those protests. We matter. Right? But the message that we've relentlessly given is democracy equals elections. We must get round to a more sophisticated message that democracy is checks and balances. But one of the agencies that's actually doing that is the Open Society Institute, and I commend that sort of effort to deepen what we mean by democracy. But secondly, apart from the message from the media, we need to do things which squeeze the sovereign revenues and raise the, public, the, the money that has to be spent on public goods. As you change that ratio, you flip the incentives, you make it viable for a political party that offers public goods rather than private patronage to win. The key actor in the Middle East that can change that ratio is the oil companies, our oil companies. The flow of oil revenues must become conditional on continuing transparency in their use. We need a template for corporate social responsibility for resource rents. The past record of how these resource rents have been misused is sufficiently shocking that, as an international community, we should demand that of the oil companies. Natural resource rents are the big wasted opportunity for development of the last 30 years. I'll take that up more in the panel this afternoon. Let me turn to failing states. Um, you remember that uh, happy states all look alike, but failing states fail in many different ways, according to some 19th century writer I forget. Um, the, uh, I'm going to take them failing in two ways. One is uh, bad policies and institutions, which condemn citizens to poverty. And the other, I guess, more dramatic way in which society states fail is if they go into civil war. 
Um, these failings are, of course, linked, um, and they're both highly persistent. I've, my recent work is looking at how to get turnarounds in failing states of the first type, where you've just got very bad policy and institutions. I find that the expected duration of these failing states, the mathematical expectation of failure, is 60 years. So a country that just drops in to being a failing state, like Cote d'Ivoire did a couple of years ago, the mathematical expectation is that it will stay failing for the lifetimes of everybody here, unless we do something. Civil war is also highly persistent. Typical civil war lasts 15 years, and when you're out of it, you've got about a 50% chance of going back into it. Both these uh, syndromes of failing states are also highly costly. I've tried to cost uh, the persistent policy failure, and uh, I come to a sum of about $100 billion. If, in addition, you've got a civil war, that adds about $50 billion. So does democracy help? Does democracy help turn around failing states? Does it help avoid civil war? Well, I've looked at these policy turnarounds. Democracy has no effect on the chances of policy turnaround, unfortunately. I've looked at civil wars. There it's a little bit sadder. Um, democracy reduces the risk of civil war if you're above a certain per capita income level about $700 per capita, and below $700 per capita, democracy actually seems to increase the risk of civil war. Right? This is not an argument, don't have democracy, but it means democracy is not going to solve the problem of failing states. One way in which democracy can actually increase uh, civil war tensions is that uh, the, one of the causes I've found for civil war is, is situations called ethnic dominance, where you've got uh, one big ethnic group that's around half the population. And what democracy tends to uh, produce in those environments is it reinforces the temptation of the majority uh, to ignore the minorities. Again, we need a more sophisticated view of democracy than just an election which gives the majority power to rule. Democracy in these contexts has to mean minority rights. Let me elaborate on what can we do, first in the case of inducing policy turnarounds in failing states. Here the instrument I'm going to look at is aid. And the, uh, the question I'm going to pose is when is aid like oil and when is it not like oil? When is it part of the problem? When is it part of the solution? Yeah. And of course the policy community just divides, right? There's, there's one group that passionately believes aid is the solution and won't hear any criticisms, and there's another that just passionately believes it's the problem. What I found is that you can get aid right and you can get it wrong. And there's rather specific things that have to happen. I should just say, as an, as an aside, that now is not an auspicious time to get uh, policy turnarounds in failing states because they, most of them got terms of trade booms with high natural resource prices. I find that high natural resource prices tends to reduce the chances of policy turnarounds. 
So now is not an auspicious time, but unfortunately, now is what we've got. Right? So we'd better try and work with it. First, getting aid wrong. Well, one example of getting aid wrong is providing a lot of technical assistance before there's any signs of an appetite for reform within the society. On my analysis, it's a complete waste. Second mistake is putting in a lot of money, a lot of finance, as soon as there's a sign of improvement. On my analysis, that actually kills off the chances of improvement. What does getting aid right mean? Well, I find that in the first four or five years of a reform program, what's enormously effective is very big technical assistance, much bigger than usually we've done in the past. It has a very big fail. It raises the chances of a turnaround, of a sustained turnaround, by 15 percentage points. The typical technical assistance package would cost about a billion dollars over four or five years. It raises the chances of a sustained turnaround in a failing state by 15 percentage points. So if you do the math, for about $7 billion, on average, you'll get a turnaround in a failing state. Huh? Think how much it's cost to get a turnaround in Iraq. Right? I'm, I'm offering you an Iraq for $7 billion and nobody dead. Right? It's a bargain. Right? Uh, what's more, we're likely to have many more opportunities over the next decade for pushing incipient reforms forward by technical assistance than we are for military intervention. And so this is likely to be the big story, not a thing at the margin. It's going to produce more turnarounds, sustained turnarounds, than military. On policy turnarounds, I'm going to close with, uh, can we get aid to work? Not just post-reform, after these turnarounds, but prior to reform. And I want to go back to this key ratio of the sovereign revenues which finance patronage politics versus the public goods which uh, a, a legitimate political party would be, would be offering. If aid raises sovereign revenues, it's part of the problem. If it raises public goods delivery, it's part of the solution. Historically, aid actually hasn't been like oil. It has mainly raised public goods provision, and on my analysis, it has increased the chances of turnarounds, of policy turnarounds. The way that aid has managed to avoid the fate of oil is through being delivered in projects. That's a very cumbersome, very inefficient way of delivering aid, but it's what's been done. The question is, can we do better than that? There are some worrying future trends in aid which suggest we might do worse. Uh, one is debt relief. Right? The whole NGO community has delivered debt relief. And what, what is debt relief? Well, it's, in effect, it's budget support for failing states. It's unrestricted uh, revenues, it's sovereign revenues given to failing states. Another trend is, is, uh, is budget support for failing states. I've just come from Chad where the European Union has just given 20 million 
euro to, as budget support for the, for the government. Um, how can we do better? Well, I think we can deliver aid analogous to the Chad Cameroon pipeline model of oil rent, of how oil money was supposed to be delivered. In that scheme, first of all, the oil revenue was supposed to be additional, incremental to the government's own resources. So the government had to spend its own money on public service delivery. That's, step, that's condition one for aid, I think. Condition two is that all expenditures, both aid and the government's own money, on the public services should be scrutinized. The expenditures should be scrutinized. In Chad, that is the case. There's a college which scrutinizes and authorizes all expenditures and checks that they are indeed on the public services that they're supposed to be on. I think if we had that system, in a way it's a system of shared sovereignty, we would be able to, by scaling up aid, squeeze down the rents because the government will be having to match at least some money from its own resources and we'd be increasing public service provision. At some stage, a political party which said we're going to provide public services better would defeat a party which is playing the private patronage game. Then we finally turn to peace after civil war. And here the instrument is, is not aid, it's not corporate social responsibility in the oil companies, it's military. Half of all civil wars are relapses of post-conflict situations. That's a big opportunity to get these situations right. We can do much better than the historical record. Most post-conflict countries typically start with absolutely lousy policies and institutions, and the typical mistake that post-conflict governments have made is to have big domestic military spending. There's a natural reason why they would have big domestic military spending. They're scared stiff that there's going to be another civil war, and they're right to be scared stiff. Right? What I find is that that high military spending in post-conflict situations actually increases the risk of further war. The deterrence effect is offset by a perverse signaling effect. The signal that the government is spending a lot of money on the army signals back to war. The econometrics of teasing out that result is, of course, complicated because you've got causality running in both directions. You'll have to believe me that I've done it. Here's an opportunity. High risk of reversion to war. The typical policy disaster is high domestic military spending. We need external military presence to keep those risks down. And we can make that external military presence conditional upon some good governance behavior by the government. And what would the good governance behavior be? Partly, it will be cuts in military spending domestic military spending, partly it would be transparency in budgetary processes. Both with aid and with military, we've got to try and increase accountability of governments to their own populations. I'll give you an example of getting it almost right, uh, is the British in Sierra Leone. Uh, 
Um, almost right. The military presence provided peace. It's a long-term presence. Even when the military is withdrawn, there's what's called an over-the-horizon guarantee that the, force, the troops will return if there's any trouble. And so that's stabilizing the political environment over a long time. The mistake is that the British, and indeed the international community generally, has not been tough enough in demanding good governance out of the Sierra Leonean government. And so it's back to the politics of patronage instead of the politics of service delivery. Again, we need an international template of what behavior should be like in post-conflict situations. The British didn't get tough because they feared accusations of being neo-colonialist. If there was an international template, they would just have followed it. Let me conclude. Sometimes democracy is enough for major improvements in governance. But in the two important circumstances of resource riches and failing states, it isn't enough. Indeed, it creates new problems. International action will be needed to make democracy work in these environments. We've got four instruments, and the good news is that in the past, we've used them so badly that there's big opportunities for, for doing better. The media, we've sent the wrong image of democracy. We have to get a more sophisticated message over. Corporate social responsibility. In the extractive industries, to date, corporate social responsibility has meant be nice to the environment. That's a sideshow. That's a sideshow. It's governance is the central issue. We have to educate the pressure groups into demanding a different agenda from the oil companies. Aid. Aid is not going to failing states. Best example of that is the Millennium Challenge Account. Millennium Challenge Account is organized on the best principles of, of aid allocation, which is that um, aid works best where everything's already okay. And, uh, and that's fine, it's sensible, right? Uh, but it just doesn't address the problem of failing states. We need a different pot of money to do that. It will be more like a venture capital fund because quite often it won't go right. But in aggregate, a well-managed aid venture capital fund for turning around failing states would have a very high rate of return indeed. Again, the agenda there would not be to get conditionality towards donors. It's not that we want governments to be responsible to the donor community. It's that we want governments to be responsible to their own populations. And finally, the military. We certainly use the military, but we've not really used it for guarantees in these rather high-risk situations, guarantees conditional upon governments doing the right thing. That's a very cheap use of, of our military resources, and I think it would be very effective. How long would we need to adopt these strategies for? Quite a long time, but not forever. If we were adopting these strategies, growth rates will be much higher in these environments. As growth proceeds, 
income levels rise, and as income levels rise, historically, societies have been able to manage their own checks and balances. And so, in one sense, Condoleezza Rice is right. It is pump priming, but we're going to have to be priming that pump for rather longer than I think she envisaged. Thanks very much. Thanks very much, Paul. Um, we'll turn to John McMillan and uh, Larry Diamond for comment first. Paul um, started out by saying that as an economist, he's unlicensed to talk about politics and then proceeded to talk about politics. Um, I'm going to do the same. I'm an economist, and I'm going to spend my time talking about democracy. Um, actually, seriously, this, this indicates an interesting uh, trend um, of late. Not very long ago, um, economics and political science were armed camps. Each thought the other fundamentally misguided in how they went about studying their subjects. Uh, more recently, there's been a genuine convergence. You can read papers these days and not know whether they're written by economists or political scientists. The two subjects have come together in an interesting and healthy way. Um, I want to pick up, Paul covered so many important and interesting topics. Um, I, I'm just going to focus on a few of them. Um, the issue, the, the relationship between democracy and growth um, ha, has generated a minor industry of late. Um, looking uh, statistically, is there a relationship? Statistically, do democracies grow faster than autocracies would all like the answer to be yes, unfortunately, it's no, as Paul indicated. Um, democracies, on average, don't grow any faster than autocracies. If anything, they grow a bit more slowly. Uh, so that's not the result we would have hoped. But if we'd, if we'd thought about it a little bit, it's probably the result we should have expected. Um, for every Chinese Communist Party that generates uh, strikingly rapid growth for every Suharto who, who uh, lifts large numbers of people out of poverty. There's a Mobutu and a Marcos um, who, who do the opposite. Um, what, what the data show, in fact, is that there's no relationship on average between democracy and growth, um, but there is a great deal of variation. Autocracies do better and worse. That's why there's no average relationship, democracy is at least a guarantee that you don't get disastrous outcomes. You can get spectacularly good outcomes under autocracy, as China indicates, but you can also get spectacularly bad. So one can think of democracy as a kind of insurance mechanism, if nothing else, um, preventing the worst possible outcomes. Um, as I said, we shouldn't really have been surprised by this result. Think of the issue of designing incentives for the guy in charge, whether this is somebody in charge of a corporation or a country. There's, there's always a trade-off. How much autonomy do you give the person in charge? Autonomy is freedom to do good things. It's also freedom to do bad things. Um, so the, the designer of a, uh, of a political system, democracy versus autocracy, has to take this into account. The, the U.S. founding fathers, of course, believed uh, very strongly um, 
that we should not give the people in charge very much autonomy. On the contrary, we should hedge them around with, with a very tight set of constraints, um, all, all the sort of overlapping checks and balances um, that we read about in the Federalist Papers. Um, and, and the new evidence of the sort that Paul is talking about and the literature that he's a part of shows to my reading that the Founding Fathers were strikingly correct, that we do need uh, to put a lot of constraints on the people in charge. Now, democracy is not just elections. Paul used the word democracy in a couple of different senses. Initially, he meant by democracy, when he was talking about his regressions, he was meaning holding elections. But then he went on to say that actually democracy is, is, uh, is a much broader phenomenon than that. It's all a complicated system of institutions that go along with elections. And, and this, you know, this is sort of commonplace these days when talking about Iraq or Afghanistan or whatever, to say that democracy is much more than just elections. However, when people say that, there's often a sort of certain vagueness. You know, what else is it? What else do we need beyond elections? And the sort of research that Paul is talking about helps flesh out and give empirical detail to that question of what else. And while that what else is complicated, it's all the stuff that was written about in the Federalist Papers, there is one strikingly simple um, answer to the question of what else do we need beyond elections, and that is that by far the most important thing to my reading of the evidence and consistent with what Paul was saying is a free press. Of course, we need all the other institutions. We need an independent judiciary. We need a legislature. We need a constitution. We need all that stuff. But they pale into insignificance, to my reading of the evidence, relative to a free press, especially, and, and maybe I should, especially and perhaps solely in countries with weak institutions. So I, I'm not asserting that this is necessarily true of the United States, for example, that the, that the press is by far the number one constraint on bad politicians. But I think it's clear that in developing countries, it is. And there's, uh, the, there are a number of pieces of evidence, some of which Paul alluded to. Um, the most powerful piece of evidence, to my reading, uh, came out a few years ago. Um, and what I think is, 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 possibly, is one of the you know, handful of most important findings in all of social science. This is work by Amacha Sen uh, looking at famines. So fam uh, Sen convincingly documents the following striking fact. Famines never happen in democracies. Famines are solely a phenomenon of autocracies. And uh, the, read, read Sen's book, The Evidence is Overwhelming. When you look at it, um, the biggest famine in history um, occurred in China in the horribly misnamed Great Leap Forward. 30 million people, by current estimates, died in the Great Leap Forward. India had famines under colonialism, has never had a famine since it's been a self-governing democracy. Neighboring African countries suffering the same uh, bad weather conditions those that have some measure of democracy survive without a famine. Those that are autocracies often fall into a famine. And Sen's argument, what is it about democracy that guards against famine? His argument essentially is, it's not that hard to prevent a famine. 
a, you know, a famine is a symptom of a horrible screw-up on the part of the government. A few elementary measures taken by the government could prevent a famine. It's, it's almost never the case that a famine is, an abs- is a consequence of an absolute shortage of food. It's a maldistribution of food. The food exists somewhere. Uh, it's just that it's not getting to the right places. That's what a famine is. It can be averted by fairly elementary government actions. And Sen's argument is that what it takes to generate those actions is a free press, to alert the government to the upcoming famine, to put some pressure on the government to do something about it. With that elementary measure of democracy, you can avert a famine, uh, according to Sen. Another piece of evidence on the power of the press is some research I've been doing on Peru. Peru in the 1990s was run, as you may remember, by a man named Alberto Fujimori um, in partnership with uh, his secret police chief, Vladimiro Montesinos, um, who ran an organization, the National Intelligence Service, which in its Spanish acronym was aptly called SIN. Um, what Montesinos did uh, was exactly the reverse of what Paul was talking about. Paul was talking about the question of how do you build checks and balances in a country that doesn't have them. Montesinos took a country that had checks and balances and subverted them. He, he created essentially a fake democracy. So Peru, when Fujimori took charge in 1990, had all of the things that, uh, the, the, that the Federalist Papers lays out. It had a constitution, it had a legislature, it had elections. Fujimori, by the way, won elections, honestly, up until the end when he fixed the last one. Uh, it had a judiciary. All of, n- none of these things worked perfectly, but they existed. Um, and Montesinos undermined them all. So you can think of Montesinos as sort of an anti-Publius. Publius, Madison et al. designed this complicated system of checks and balances to constrain the government. They did this very cleverly, a wonderful piece of applied political science. Montesinos, equally cleverly, figured out how to undermine this system of checks and balances. And he did it by a variety of mechanisms. He used blackmail, um, and he used bribery. He also kept meticulous records of his actions. So he, uh, if he bribed somebody, he gave any, anybody a sizable bribe, he demanded a receipt, uh, and he kept all the receipts. Uh, he also wrote uh, quasi-legal contracts, so uh, specifying in great detail what the bribee was expected to do for the money he was paid. He also videotaped his negotiations, which is... When he, Quite astonishing. This is, uh, it's very rare to get data on corruption. Here we have, we can watch it happening in real time. You can buy these videotapes on the streets in Lima. Um, so this gives us wonderful data. Calvin said science is measurement. We can't really usually measure much about corruption. Montesinos allows us to measure corruption to measure also the force of the checks and balances, because as I said, he used these bribes um, to undermine the constraints on the executive branch. He bribed judges 
He bribed opposition politicians. He bribed the press. And we know the size of those bribes because we have them on a videotape. For example, one TV station, the TV station with the biggest viewership, received a bribe of one and a half million US dollars per month in exchange for which Montesinos got to dictate the entire content of every news broadcast. He would, this is very time consuming when you think about it, at 12.30 every day, the TV station owners would gather in Montesinos' office. He would review what they were going to show on the news and approve it or not, and then they would go and, and, and do their, quote, news broadcasts. So this cost him 1.5 million from just for one TV station. Uh, overall, by a very conservative estimate, he was paying $3 million a month to the TV stations. He was paying way less than $300,000 a month in total to opposition politicians to buy their covert support and he was paying even less, around $200,000 a month uh, to judges in order to be able to buy their decisions. So he had all these people on retainers. Notice the numbers, that the cost of bribing, uh, of bribing the television stations was an order of magnitude higher than the cost of bribing judges and politicians we can take these bribes as a measure of the force of the checks and balances. Which of the checks and balances was Montesinos most worried about? And by a large, by a large difference, the one he was most worried about was television. Also newspapers, but television more so because they had the biggest viewership. So checks and balances matter the most, as the founding fathers well understood, uh, it, this, this empirical research is, is, is reinforcing what we understand about the wisdom of the founding fathers. But the most important of the checks and balances is, is the one that the founding fathers had the least to say about, that is, a free press. And that suggests if we're going to think about how to build democracy in countries where it's lacking, that thinking about how to create a free press is, is the number one issue. Thank you. Uh, we'll turn to Larry Diamond next. Okay. Um, well, thank you all for coming to this uh, wonderful first annual event. I hope it's going to be an annual event, maybe even semi-annual. And uh, thank you Chip, uh, wherever you are, for the invitation to participate. Uh, I didn't know what Paul was going to say, uh, so uh, <laughs> I've had to sort of uh, think on the fly here. And it may not be uh, terribly smooth and coherent, but here are my random uh, reactions to um, his very stimulating and, I think, um, uh, important presentation. Uh, and I by the way, have great admiration for Paul Collier. I think his work has greatly influenced not only academic thinking on issues of governance and development, but policies as well. Uh, Paul uh, spoke about the Millennium Challenge account. I'm going to speak more about it, and for those of you who don't know what it is, I will explain it. 
But I think his research uh, showing that uh, there is a need for, and it makes a difference when there is some standards for uh, development assistance, uh, has had an important influence on the creation of the MCA. Let me begin with, as a social scientist, if I may, who for a time actually did uh, some of these statistical regression analyses of what determines the likelihood of a country being a democracy or developing or whatever. Let me begin by uh, registering a note of caution, if I may. I have grown much more skeptical about um, cross-national, and cross-national means you're looking at generally uh, a sample or a population size of maybe 50 to 100 countries, so very small uh, numbers of cases uh, statistically analyzed, I've become uneasy about drawing very uh, firm and conclusive uh, uh, um, conclusions <laughs> uh, on the basis of these kinds of statistical analyses for the following reasons. They are very sensitive to time and place, which is to say, if you do a statistical analysis of whether democracy leads to development, and you look at uh, the period whether democracies grow better than authoritarian regimes, and you look at the period 1960 to 1980, you're going to get a very different result than if you look at the period 1990 to 2005. If you look at the question uh, in Africa between 1990 and 2005, you're going to get a very different result than, in fact, the one John McMillan gave you. We have uh, a student here, a brilliant student who uh, graduated recently, then worked at the World Bank, and is, I'm sad to say, about to start his economic PhD program at Berkeley uh, rather than Stanford. But anyway, uh, Ben Eifert uh, did these regressions for Africa, and he uh, tried to uh, relate the rate of economic growth of African countries post-1990 to their Freedom House scores. Freedom House measures every year levels of political rights and civil liberties. And he found, in fact, a quite stunning positive relationship, not in the least surprising to me, uh, between the level of political and civil rights in an African country after 1990 and its rate of economic growth. So I think there's quite a lot going on here, and um, we need to unpack these relationships both uh, as to time, that is, historical era, and place as to uh, region. This is particularly important in terms of the relationship between uh, economic development and democracy in the other sense. Can poor countries become democracies? Uh, I grew up in an era, that is, I grew up intellectually here at Stanford, working with Seymour Martin, Lipset, and Alex Inkelis, in an era when modernization theory confidently predicted that rich countries or countries becoming rich are very likely to become democracies sooner or later, and in fact, they still are. But the other side of the coin was uh, that if you're a poor country, forget it. Your odds of being a democracy are very, very low. And indeed, there was a statistical study uh, by the New York University uh, political scientist Adam Shaworski and his uh, colleagues, then at the University of Chicago, looking at data between 1950 and 1990, that if you were a poor country and by some chance you did become a democracy, 
you had an average life expectancy for your democracy of eight years. Uh, and in fact, many of them broke down much sooner. Well, lo and behold, today we find, first of all, not a tiny sprinkling of democracies among low-income countries, but in fact that fully one-third of the bottom third of distribution of countries by their level of economic development, uh, as measured by the UN Development Program, fully 55 of those 165 countries are democracies today. And in fact, many of them uh, have been democracies for a decade or longer. You can't get a country more cursed in terms of its likelihood of being a democracy and remaining so than the landlocked, resource-poor, uh, in the middle of the Sahara Desert, African country of Mali with a Muslim-majority population. This is a country that has now had an electoral turnover, has been a democracy for more than 10 years, and is now rated free, that is even a relatively liberal democracy, by Freedom House. No coincidence then, fortunately, in terms of the logic of what I'm going to be talking about, that Mali is a country that is going to receive Millennium Challenge Account assistance. The main argument I would uh, uh, tender here, which I think builds uh, in a sympathetic way on what um, Paul Collier and John McMillan have said, is that poor countries can uh, remain democracies, develop democracy, if they have good governance. And I think the reverse is also true, that we're not going to see good governance in the remaining impoverished, troubled, or failing states of the, uh, what used to be called the developing world. But of course, these countries aren't developing without uh, democracy. The two really, I think, um, have to go hand in hand. Now, Paul Collier suggested uh, that two of the things that emerge from his statistical analyses as leading to um, more successful democracy, maybe more successful development broadly, are not having the natural resource curse and having uh, ethnic diversity. Um, this doesn't really get us very far because neither of these variables is very manipulable in the short run. I think one of them is in the long run, and you know, there's one obvious thing that needs to be said uh, about what the United States and the industrialized West could do to advance uh, governance, democracy, human rights, and development throughout much of the world that is cursed with uh, oil wealth. Uh, and it's something they could do for themselves, and, I understand, and it would respond to what I understand was a major point that Hans Blix made this, this morning about the threat of uh, global warming, uh, and that is we've got to get serious about our energy consumption in the industrialized West. We need to do so for uh, and our consumption of hydrocarbons in particular. We need to do so for our national security, but we need to do so because I believe, having studied Nigeria for 30 years, from the very time when Paul was talking about Obasanjo won and the transition to democracy between 1975 and 79, that the only time Nigeria is really going to get serious about governance uh, is when they run out of oil revenue. So I think Paul is definitely on the right track to emphasize that the key is political institutions. And uh, I'd just like to elaborate um, the sort of code word 
checks and balances into something more comprehensive, which very much speaks to the integration of themes that we're trying to achieve in the Center on Democracy, Development, and the Rule of Law. Uh, this really requires not just um, checks and balances in the sense we understand it. There's an independent judiciary and an independent legislature, uh, and they, to some extent, check the executive branch. That is just not nearly good enough, I think, in any democracy, but certainly not in the troubled democracies uh, in the non-developing world today. Uh, they need an independent judiciary very, very badly. Uh, and this means that judges have to have tenure of office. They need to be appointed by means that are independent of political control, because one of the first things corrupt governments do uh, in political systems where corruption is rife, where corruption is the way that the system works, where nobody wants to be held accountable because everybody wants to be able to accumulate wealth through the kind of marvelous example Paul, Ga Paul Collier gave of that uh, contract for the dam that was withdrawn and then inflated five times over before it was let out again. Uh, in that kind of system, political leaders are not going to appoint judges who are really going to enforce the law in a neutral and nonpartisan manner. Neither are they going to appoint the other kinds of institutions that need to operate in a really vigorous, resourceful, purposeful, and independent way to hold government uh, accountable. And those would include a counter-corruption commission, a public audit commission, which we have in the United States, of course. It's our government accountability agency. Uh, used to be called the General Accounting Office. Uh, our ombudsman, and uh, of course, it really helps. Uh, if you think that press freedom is important, then you have to think that the ability of the press to find out what government does and monitor it effectively is important. And therefore, the innovation that we've had in the United States, which many, many countries around the world want to know about and attempt to emulate in some way of a Freedom of Information Act, is very important as well. All of these are instruments of, if you will, checks and balances, what we call in the literature now horizontal accountability, because they involve some agencies of government holding other agencies of government accountable and interlocking in a way where they cooperate in the pursuit of good governance and accountability and at the same time hold one another accountable. If you go to Nigeria today, you will find there is a counter-corruption commission, there is a, a, a very elaborate federal judiciary with multiple tiers, uh, there are most of these instruments of horizontal accountability on paper, but until very recently, and I'm going to come to that, they have not functioned at all. And the reason why they don't function at all is because the president of the country, who is a partisan politician, who sits at the top of this uh, corrupt institutional structure, which uh, has as its entire purpose the accumulation of wealth for oneself, one's family, one's crony, and one's political party, uh, has no interest in having these institutions function in a serious and purposeful way. So I believe that if we are serious about promoting development in the world, if we are serious about preventing or trying to prevent state deterioration and ultimately failure and the internal violence that can often 
horrifically result for that in many of these troubled regions of the world. We have to be serious, not in general about checks and balances, not in general about democracy, but about the very specific institutional structures, the way they function, the way they are appointed, the way they are resourced, uh, and so on. Now, this does not mean that the United States has to dictate to any particular country what particular institutions it has. But it does mean, I think, if we're serious about the principles of accountability for development, that we have to demand that these governments sit down with their own civil societies, uh, their own transparency international chapters, bar associations, women's and professional groups, and work out a plan for serious institutional design and functioning of institutions of accountability. Let me come to a minute for Ghana, uh, which I just returned from uh, a couple of months ago. Now, Ghana is, uh, has been identified as a recipient of Millennium Challenge Account Assistance. It's a country that's doing fairly well in Africa. Uh, it is rated free by Freedom House, in many ways a liberal democracy. Ghana is a country where uh, the uh, president has just been reelected and named a new cabinet with 88 ministers and junior ministers. Think about what that implies about the swollenness of government. Ghana is a country where the entire judiciary, and I talked to the chief justice about this, the counter-corruption apparatus, and I talked to the very innovative and brave woman who now heads that, is grossly underfunded and is not meant to be enforcing the law in a serious way. Ghana is doing pretty good by African standards, but pretty good by African standards is not going to lift Ghana out of poverty in the next generation. And so if we are serious about uh, using our resources and our leverage for development, uh, we have to demand that uh, and aid their own civil societies to try to achieve standards of accountability uh, that are good by absolute principles and not just by African standards. Now, let me end briefly with two, two brief points. One is about the Millennium Challenge account. The Millennium Challenge account was created about three years ago under the very important leadership of our own Steve Krasner, who's just uh, unfortunately left our center, but for the better good of the country to direct policy planning in the State Department, with the idea that there was going to be a new increment of development assistance that was going to go to countries on the basis of their performing well in terms of being serious about governance and spending public resources for the betterment of the public good, for development. I don't think we should look at this, Paul, as rewarding countries that are already doing well. These are low-income countries. They're really poor. But they are uh, rewarding countries that at least have the institutional structures in place, in theory, that would enable them to make effective use of development assistance. I think this is a great logic. I think it's a revolution in development assistance. I'm all for it. I applaud the Bush administration for it. But there are two problems with it. Number one, as I've alluded to, we're grading on a curve. If nobody is serious about controlling corruption in, in, among these low-income countries, and right now, you know what? Virtually nobody is. 
then we're going to reward the countries that are a little bit less unserious than the others. And secondly, it's the United States doing this unilaterally all over again. Uh, and naturally, our uh, motives and our scores, the mysterious scores that come out of these countries that lead to who gets the money and who doesn't, are suspect. So I think we need to move to standardize this, broaden it, internationalize it, and hopefully induct it somewhat into the operations of the World Bank as much as possible. Finally, I want to say a word about debt relief, which I believe uh, Paul uh, did touch on. Uh, and here, uh, I think if I understood what he was saying correctly, my view quite echoes his. And if I do misrepresent you, please correct me, Paul. But in any case, I think we are squandering an enormous amount of potential leverage by giving unconditional debt relief to uh, all low-income countries, all highly indebted low-income countries. Um, this is an enormous opportunity for us to say, to, to come to a kind of compact or charter with these countries, a, a bargain for development. You improve your governance. You get serious about monitoring, controlling, uh, and punishing corruption, and holding government officials accountable, and responding to the needs of your publics, and we will eliminate your debt and even increase your aid. Uh, but it seems to me that to lock countries into that agreement, we shouldn't simply write off the debt in one fell swoop, which then enables them rather quickly to return to their bad practices, but rather suspend all debt repayments for countries that seem able or willing to meet certain standards of good governance and then write down the debt at 10% a year uh, for every year they maintain a free press, checks and balances, and other dimensions of good governance. If we do that, after 10 years, their debt is gone, they haven't had to service it, and maybe some of these institutional practices that Paul and John were talking about can really become embedded in norms and expectations uh, in a deeper and more sustainable way. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks very much, Larry. Um, we, have, we have a few minutes for questions. I'm told that uh, we have been permitted to run a little bit over. Um, there was a purposeful pad put into the schedule um, so that lunch actually does not begin until 1 o'clock. So we can take a few questions. Um, if you'd like to come up to the microphone, identify yourself. Um, yep, lady over here on the left. My name is Oriana Mastro. I'm a student at Stanford University. My question is to Professor Collier. Um, you touched upon the connection between good governance and a decrease in military spending, which led you to the conclusion that there is a need for an external military presence. It's quite possible, because this wasn't really articulated, that I've misunderstood um, the idea of external military presence. But two images come to my mind. One is uh, more abstract in security assurances, which perhaps would constrain policy options in the case that conflict does erupt, um, as, well as, as well as question the um, protection of sovereignty in the case that um, military involvement is necessary in internal affairs, or perhaps more concretely, the idea of American troops, perhaps in a country like Saudi Arabia, that fuels um, terrorism insurg insurgencies and in many ways is cited to validate claims of um, American neo-imperialism. Given that um, there's limited resources, and in politics as well as in economics, there must be consideration of the costs and benefits of policy 
I would ask you to please extrapolate perhaps on how the benefits of your recommendations outweigh the costs as well as a, perhaps a clarification of your recommendations as well as perhaps touch upon the fact that if aid is linked to greater responsibilities and commitments such as an external military presence that this might perhaps lead to a decrease in aid and actually hurt the cause of helping failing states. Thank you. Okay. Thanks. Paul, do you want to respond to that? Uh, yeah, sure. The, um External military presence, that's the preceding program was brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U and is copyrighted by the Board of Trustees of the Leland Stanford Junior University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.